our scripture reading this morning will be taken from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 13 through 16, 13 through 16, and then our confession will be in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is in the back of your Psalter hymnal, page 884, Lord's Day 27. So Lord's Day 27, we'll go through those three questions and answers after we read the three verses of Mark 10. Four verses of Mark 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. This is the word of God. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So far the reading of God's word. In your Forms and Prayers book, or the back of your Trinity, Lord's Lord's Day 27, I will ask the questions 72, 73, 74, I would love for all of us to answer in unison. The first question then, number 72, in regards to baptism, says, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Question 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. And number 74, should infants also be baptized? Yes, Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people, and they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. 
congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was growing up in northwest Washington, I lived on a dairy farm. My father was a dairy farmer with my grandfather. And so because we lived on the dairy farm, my dad would be inside for most meals, sometimes throughout the day to grab a cup of coffee. So we as children had access to my dad quite often. If he wasn't too tired and we could convince him to, we would, the boys would roughhouse with my dad on the ground. And something that he loved to do with us was when he was laying on the ground, he would perch us on top of his feet as he was laying backwards. He would hold on to our hands, and then we were suspended in the air at his mercy. Usually with a one, two, three, he would launch us up in the air. Thankfully, he was very good at it because, as far as I remember, he always caught us when we came down. As a small child, we don't even think twice about allowing our fathers to do things like that. Sometimes, maybe in the swimming pool in the summer, dads will throw their children into the air. And if the younger ones see the older ones do it and they survive, usually they're more than happy to be put through the same excitement. This type of silliness, this type of roughhousing, we can put right alongside of all the other fun things that our dads do with us that we don't even think twice about. After all, we are born with an innate trust, a confidence in the ability of our fathers to keep us safe. In a similar way in our passage, we see another example of childlike dependency and trust. In this portion of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus makes clear that far beyond trusting our earthly fathers to catch us when we fall, believers are also called to trust in our Father in heaven with a childlike dependency for our eternal salvation. The theme of our sermon is that, childlike, excuse me, childlike trust and dependence on Christ's assuring promises. We will look at our text in three different points. The first point is from verse 13. It's the apostles' arrogant decision. Our second point, verse 14, Jesus' stern warning. And our third point is verses 15 and 16, the promise of God to believers. As we look at this small group of verses this morning, I want to remind you all of what has taken place leading up to this situation. In the preceding five chapters of Mark, Jesus has been doing many miracles. He's fed about 9,000 people among the two feedings. And he's given warnings and prophecies to his apostles and the Pharisees. What I want us to see, though, specifically, is that about half of the healing miracles that Jesus has done up to this point have been towards children. In chapter 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter back to life. In chapter 7, Jesus heals the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. And in chapter 9, Jesus restores the young boy who's been possessed by a demon. Not only that, but near the end of chapter 9, Jesus has given the clear and the shocking warning to his disciples that it would be better for a man to be drowned, to have a millstone hung around his neck, than for him to cause a child to sin. Jesus has made it very clear from the beginning that his healings and his teachings 
They seek the well-being of children and adults alike. Not only that, but children and adults that are outside of the ethnic group of Israel. As we come to the passage today, what is happening might seem a little bit strange to us in 21st century America. But according to R. Kent Hughes, who is a retired seminary professor from Westminster, Philadelphia, Jewish people bringing little children to be blessed by a great teacher or a rabbi, as they're called, would be a custom that would have dated back to when Jacob, then called Israel, laid his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh and blessed them back in Genesis chapter 48. Jesus being seen as a prophet from God who was in town or in the area would attract large crowds of people. And those people would look for a blessing to be placed on their children. The disciples, though, have different plans for Jesus' ministry. We can see throughout the gospel that while the disciples were the closest people to Jesus, spending many hours in intimate company with him, they had trouble sometimes seeing the full scope of Jesus' ministry. I don't say that to belittle them or make fun of them, because... We are on the other side of all of history. We can see how it all plays out. If we were in their position, we would likely make the same mistakes that they do. But they did have trouble seeing and believing what Jesus came to earth to do. It is a fact, recorded for us in Scripture, that Jesus at times became frustrated with them for their lack of insight into what he was saying. As we see in this passage, the disciples who have watched Jesus do countless miracles, feeding thousands of people. He's walked on water. They have decided that they need to start directing Jesus towards more important things than wasting time on children who don't contribute to the cause. They see all these people lining up to have Jesus bless their children, and they rebuke them. How dare all these people waste the time of Jesus, the Son of God, with silly things like blessing babies. The disciples have essentially decided that they know who is worthy of Jesus' time and efforts and who is not. And we might ask ourselves, why would they do that? Haven't they been paying attention to Jesus? Who do they think they are limiting the scope of Jesus' power of salvation? Well, if you find yourself saying that, as I have at times in the past... We should probably follow the advice of the Bible and remove the log from our own eye before we deal with the splinter that's in the apostles' eyes. How often don't we look at the world around us and make judgments in our hearts about who is worthy of the grace of God? How often don't we see vile criminals, those who sin sometimes grievously against their fellow countrymen, and we condemn them immediately to hell? What they have done may not have even affected us. But we are so self-righteous, we are so sure of our moral superiority, that we immediately play judge, jury, and executioner by condemning that person to hell with our hatred. We forget, all too often, two very important things in that moment. First of all, That by the grace of God, there go any one of us. We were saved by grace. Pure mercy. 
Not because of some inner moral forcing superiority, but unless the Holy Spirit worked in our hearts to bring us to a saving faith, we would be as wretched and sinful as any other man. Secondly, Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. Those who are well, but more accurately, those who believe that they are well, have no need of a physician. Jesus came to call sinners to himself. And I have news for all of us, that includes every single one of us. The moment we stop believing that we are in need of Christ's mercy every day, is the day that we have told ourselves that we don't need, excuse me, we don't need his payment on our behalf anymore. Our account before God can be balanced on our own works and our own merits. When we decide who is worthy of the grace of God, we have severely overstepped our lot in life. It is at that moment that we have to ask God to work in our hearts because we At that time, we have become like Jonah, deciding that Nineveh is not worthy of God's mercy. And I think even the little children here can remember what happened to Jonah. So in this first point, the very first thing we see is the disciples' pride and arrogance getting in the way, causing them to make a poor decision, a decision that we often make ourselves. The disciples see children as not worthy of Christ's time and effort. But as we move to verse 14, we see Jesus' response to the disciples, and we learn of his opinion on the matter. In our second point, focusing on verse 14, we read Jesus' response, and it says in our Bibles that Jesus was indignant. I don't know if that word quite paints the proper picture, because when I think of the word indignant, I think of a small child that doesn't want to eat their vegetables. So when mom and dad hold the spoon up in front of them, they give kind of like a, and maybe like a little humph, I don't want that. That is not what is meant by the word indignant. There's a couple different ways to translate it. The word is actually comprised of two words in the original Greek. The first part of the word means much, and the second part of the word means grief. Other definitions can be translated as greatly afflicted, much displeased, Or in 21st century English, very angry. This is not just a little bit of irritation on the part of Jesus. He is angry at his disciples' decision, and his righteous anger is made manifest in how he addresses them. Both of the verbs that are used by Jesus in his response to the disciples' action are imperatives, which is a fancy way of saying he makes commands to them. They come back to back like a drill sergeant in the military. Right after another, he wants immediate action. There is no discussion. Jesus commands his disciples. He says, let the little children come to me. And if that isn't clear enough, he follows it with, and do not hinder them. Again, if we go back to chapter 9, Jesus has no patience For those who would obstruct the access of little children to him or his father. Why is that? Is Jesus just making a publicity stunt so people will like him? No. 
Jesus is making the truth perfectly clear when he follows these rebukes to his disciples with the words, For to such as these belong the kingdom of God. Children of believers are just as much a part of God's covenant family as their parents are. This has been the way God has worked throughout the entire Bible. Noah and his family were saved from the flood. Abraham and his family were called out of idol worship. He and his sons were circumcised. The children of Israel, young and old, were brought out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Moses had to have extra discussions with Pharaoh because Pharaoh thought that just the adults needed to go. Moses assured him that their children, their little ones, would go with them to worship God. God's promises are for us and our descendants, as many as the Lord our God shall call, as Peter says in Acts chapter 3. This is not because they are something so special, or that they are instantly saved because of who their parents are, but this is because God's promises are throughout his word that he is faithful, even if we are unfaithful. His promises are sure, and we can rest on those promises. We raise our children on those promises. And then we have the most sure foundation possible to build on. As our catechism says in question and answer 74, children are no less than adults included in God's covenant and are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. The Apostle Paul says, as we read in the form for infant baptism, that the children of believers are holy, 1 Corinthians 7.14. They are to be set apart and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. Promises from God to the parents are also given to the children. We treat them as covenant members because God says they are. And as covenant members under our care, we are called to raise them in the fear of the Lord. We are called to teach them the ways of the Lord in our houses, in our work life, in our playing, in our speech, and ultimately in our worship of him. Parents, in faithful reliance on God, are called to instruct their children in the fear of the Lord, for this is right. We do not try to win them over by making them legalistic little robots, but we show them the great love by which we and they have been loved, by bringing them again and again to the amazing grace that is revealed to them in the Bible. We act as the parents in this text when we bring our children to the feet of Jesus in faith, trusting that he will bless them, trusting that his spirit will work in their hearts to soften them, turn them from a life of sin to a life of thankful love and service to him. By the work of the Spirit, they begin to think and they begin to act differently. So in verse 14, we can see that Jesus does not discriminate between young and old when it comes to pouring out his love on sinful mankind. As we move on to our final point, as we look at verses 15 and 16, we see the beautiful promises that are given by Jesus. There are two ways that we can look at the words of Christ. They're both a warning and a promise. By its nature, if you obey a warning, 
It's a promise of some sort of safety. And this warning by Jesus contains the beautiful promise as a reward. After Christ confirms that children do indeed belong to his family and kingdom, he proceeds to use the analogy of the faith of a child to show the only way into the kingdom of heaven. Remember that although Mark calls them little children, Luke specifies that these little ones brought to Jesus were infants. Infants, as I'm sure many of us parents have learned, that are completely dependent upon their parents. Just as infants rely on their parents for food, comfort, and washing, we are called to be little children when it comes to needing our salvation from God. We contribute nothing. We can do nothing. Without the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we would not even be able or willing to cry out for help, for we would see no need for a Savior. This goes back to our first point with the disciples and their overinflated view of people's worthiness. We confess that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that faith in and of itself is a gift so that no one would boast. We have to remind ourselves that when it comes to the gift of faith, we are like helpless children, given grace by our Father because He loved us, not because we are so wonderful or worthy of it. Think of it this way. Which one of us has the right to boast about which parents we got? Which of us has the right to lord it over someone else that we have better parents? Did we make that decision? Did we have a lineup in front of us at birth and we saw ones that we would eventually pick and thought, well, those parents look responsible. They look like they're patient. They will probably have the means to provide well for me. We all know that's ridiculous. But that's how we act if we think that we chose God or if we boast in our position as children of the Most High. Instead of boasting in our position as children of God, we're supposed to instead be living lives of humble gratitude, of thankfulness, of joyful obedience. The Holy Spirit working in our hearts should make us the most humble, patient, and grateful people on the face of the earth. We do not hold our heads high and parade around looking down on others. No, instead we should be overwhelmed every day that we wake up knowing that we do not deserve on our own merits to be in the family of God. We were adopted through the precious blood of Christ Jesus our Savior. We are to show our thankfulness every day for all of the gifts that ultimately come from His hand especially when it comes to our salvation in Christ. That is what we have signified whenever we see the sacrament of baptism. As parents bring their covenant children forward, like those parents did so many years ago, they are pledging before God and His people that they acknowledge their child's need of a Savior. Even when they are infants, beautiful and amazing examples of God's handiwork, they seem to be perfect in almost every way. Little babies even have the stain of sin on them. Being fallen children of Adam, they have a need of a Savior to wash them from their sins too. The water that is used in baptism is nothing special. We confess that in answer 72 and 73. The water by itself is nothing but hopefully warm tap water. 
But what that water points us to is where the comfort and the assurance comes from for all of us. The water that is placed on the head of a child without any request or affirmation of their own is a sign of the blood of Christ that is freely poured out for their sins as well. It is a sign, a sign that they will be able to, Lord willing, point back at one day when they grow older and say, Look, even as an infant, even before I knew that I needed him, Christ called me his own and he washed me in his blood. This reliance on God is not just for the infants, though. We know that Paul writes in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the promise of Christ is hidden in the morning, and the promise is this. That those who receive the kingdom of God as little children, helplessly reliant on Christ's blood and the working of the Holy Spirit, they will receive it. Just as infants are reliant on their parents to bring them to the baptismal font, to receive God's promises sealed to them, so we also are reminded that we do not rely on our own abilities or our own good works for our salvation. We rely on the blood of Christ. And we rely on the working of the Holy Spirit. We trust in Jesus' promise here that to little babies belong the, children, the kingdom of God. And in John 6, 37, it says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So just as their faith caused these parents to bring their children to Jesus to be blessed, we confess that this faith is worked by God in their hearts. And it is a way of assuring us that when we come to him in faith, he promises to covenant with us and our children. By faith... With hands stretched out empty, trusting in mercy, we bring ourselves and our children before the throne of grace. We plead the blood of Christ and we trust in God's promises. Closing with this, we with Paul confess that it is God who makes both us and you to stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This promise is sealed to us and to our little ones. A promise by our God and Father that he will be a God to them as well as to us. He will catch them when they fall, and he will hold them when they are weak. He will rejoice with them when they rejoice in him. And I ask you all here today, for what more could we ever ask or imagine? Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, make us more and more like little children every day. May we find incredible comfort and joy knowing that unto those who trust wholly in Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. So strengthen us in that truth. Cause that truth to be worked deep in our hearts, that we may show love, patience, and mercy that has been shown to us, to all those around us. In Jesus' name.